And the other tech immediately stood up and pointed at me and said, you did that. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, dude, the power just went out. Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of First Chair, the eDiscovery education podcast from Exact Data Discovery. I'm XTD's Director of Education and your host for this podcast, Matthew Verga. Each episode on First Chair, we invite guest experts to sit down with me for 20 to 30 minute conversations about a single important eDiscovery topic. From technology developments to legal developments to best practices and beyond, First Chair exposes you to experienced legal and technical practitioners and their expert insights into our continually evolving industry. Just as the transition from primarily paper sources to primarily electronic ones has complicated preservation, collection, review, and production, so too has it complicated the eventual presentation of evidence at trial. Today's litigants must juggle paper, near paper, native, and near native materials using computers, projectors, displays, and tablets, plus presentation software, automated litigation support systems, and other tools. To help us learn more about these challenges and how best to meet them, our guest this episode is once again Shannon Bales, litigation support at Munger, Tolls & Olson in Los Angeles. Shannon is highly involved with a number of education and standards efforts within the litigation lifecycle and practice management. He is a California Lawyers Association Law Practice Management and Technology Section Executive Committee member, a UN War Crimes Advisor on Litigation Support Technology and Investigations, and did a presentation at the White House with ACEDS. He is also an ACEDS and EDRM board member, an adjunct professor at UCLA on trial technology and fact analysis tools, and the author of the Trial Presentation Companion, as well as articles for ILTA, ACEDS, NITA, EDRM, and Harvard. This is part two of our interview with Shannon. You can find part one in episode nine. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the technology you've referenced for use in the courtroom. You've referenced display screens, you've referenced gaming laptops. Uh, What sorts of equipment are practitioners using to work with ESI exhibits at depositions and at trial? Well, um, due to the coronavirus, we've seen a massive move to people working online, right? So um, I know that attorneys can develop this knowledge too. If they're working with virtual depositions and those kinds of things, I know that they can incorporate better trial presentation uh, routines into their workflows at trial. And I think we're gonna start seeing remote trials where you're gonna have a uh, hot seat person helping out at trial remotely, which will be very interesting as well. Um, Now to get to the heart of your question, Um, Trends in equipment, Um, firms are waking up to the fact that they need specialized equipment for their hot seats. So um, sending a a hot seat to trial um, with the standard kind of firm laptop to make it easy on the IT department um, so that they don't have to maintain another build, um, we're seeing that, you know, a, a divide. There's firms that just won't budge on that. And, but we are seeing a lot of firms start to buy this kind of specialized equipment um, and, and the prices come down a lot. So it's not so bad. And if you're a solo attorney or a small shop out there, uh, maybe consider 
laptops that are a little heavier that have um, better video cards in them so that they can uh, get through video and, and play video um, really well at trial. The biggest problems we have is playing video and storing it and cutting it and editing it. Um, so that's problem one, making sure that you have the right kind of laptop. Problem two is that you have two of them, right? Because you need <laughs> one laptop to present and then you need another one as a backup in case, not in case, when that first backup fails. <laughs> you know, at trial, you're just throwing everything possible at this piece of equipment. You're throwing video, you're putting up exhibits, you're annotating it. You know, think of your workflow when you're in the office and your computer crashes, what you were doing. You're probably just sending an email or creating a Word document. Now imagine having, you know, doing everything possible under the sun as quickly as possible in a not so great environment. And, and, you, and you realize really quick why you need this backup. Um, uh, so you need to be able to have a switch that can go between the two backups and uh, the, the primary laptop and the backup laptop. So the switch is the next piece of equipment you wanna know how to use and use right. Um, next is, um, are you gonna use a projector or a big screen TV? Um, we are moving uh, more often than not towards big screen TVs. They're brighter. Um, they're not, they don't make a, a fan sound. Um, you don't take up as, they take up a bunch of real estate wherever they're at, but they don't uh, take up the real estate of a projector and then a screen and all of that. Um, uh, uh, when it comes to big screen TVs like that, go a lot bigger than you think you would ever want to go. Um, so 75 inches, 72 inches or bigger. Um, and the reason for that is in a modern rectangular, think of a rectangular shape of a big screen TV and that you're gonna put a document in the middle of it. So the sides are basically not usable at all, right? Right. Um, until, until you enlarge something and it goes side to side. Um, but um, you really need that ability to enlarge and, and you need it a little bit bigger because people are gonna be viewing it from across the room. And, you know, the jurors are on one side, the projector, you know, the screen is on the other. Um, so you always need to go a little bigger than what you might initially think. And every legal team should be kind of approximating their courtroom back in their home office and saying, like, uh, uh, if I put this document up, up on screen in my conference room and stand back 20 feet, can I see it? And a lot of people never even go through the analysis of that. And so you can never see the stuff that they are that they're trying to get on screen or anything along those lines. Uh, projectors hold a little bit of an edge when it comes to presenting legal documents because it's more of a square shape, and so the document fills more of the screen. But when you enlarge it, you don't get the the edge to edge that you do on the on the uh, on the uh, big screen TV. So I personally recommend a 75 inch uh, a big screen TV. Um, I think that they're better. Um, what else? Uh, what other equipment? Uh, switch, laptops. Um, uh, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that you might want to have in a go bag, ranging from Bluetooth speakers that you use as a backup. Um, you know, have a good relationship with a rental company. I'm, I'm not um, advocating that firms go out and buy big screen TVs and ship them all over the country. You know, get a... Um, 
relationship with Equipped or SmartSource, which are legal specific equipment rental vendors, um, and rent the equipment so that you that you're not maintaining this big um, uh, big supply of stuff and trying to ship it all over the place. And if it breaks during shipment, you don't have a backup. Uh, using a, an equipment rental vendor will um, gives you uh, a backup in place in case something breaks. One more reason why you don't want to be providing equipment yourself, and I'll, and I'll give you an example or two that's happened to me at trial. Um, when you use a third-party equipment rental vendor, it takes the um, it, it takes the accusation away from you when you use your own equipment and it breaks. And, and, and it'll break. Someone will trip over a cord. The, the, the power will go out in the courthouse. You know, anything, it'll burn out. Um, anything under the sun can happen, right? And, and my example is one, one of two. Example one, power went out in, in the courthouse during the, the, the other side's presentation. And the other tech immediately stood up and pointed at me and said, you did that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I said, like, dude, the power just went out. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not going to turn off the power to the courthouse. You know? I mean, and, we we got and, a paralegal down at the power plant. Right. And, and so um, this guy, oh my God. So the next day I showed up to court and I brought four backup UPS power supplies to put on some of our shared equipment and put on my own equipment. And he looks up at me and he goes, well, where's mine? Like, why would I bring you? Why would I bring you a power supply? Go buy your own power supply. You know, there's Costco right down the street, right? <laughs> and um, so um, that's one example. Uh, another example was, and this is an example of no good deed goes unpunished. Was um, I noticed a problem with the other side's presentation, and that the equipment he was having some sort of equipment connection problem or something along those lines his presentation was going in and out or something along those lines. Now, in this case, we did have a third party equipment rental vendor and he came out and uh, and, I, and I told him, oh, I think you're having a little problem with your, your connection, just being courteous. And uh, he goes, I go, I go, do you want to meet in the morning and try to figure this out? Um, you know, call the equipment rental vendor, you know, and, and, and have him meet us here and we can try and figure it out. Well, the other guy didn't didn't ever call, and he thought for some reason it was my responsibility to call the the jointly retained equipment rental vendor to fix his problems. And so, of course, he was pissed off when no one was there to fix his issues in the morning. So, you got to be careful when you're supplying the equipment. You know, you, you might think of it like it's a potluck, and everyone's going to get patted on the back for it, um, but. The reality is it, it, it puts a level of risk on your team and on you personally to get some sort of weird accusation when they're when the other sides, you know, when they start doing bad at trial, for example, or the attorneys are failing and they're putting some heat on their hot seat for it, you know, unfairly or, or not. Um, it's a good idea to have that insurance policy of a third um, third party equipment rental vendor where you're splitting the cost and you split the service and support and everything else versus using someone else's equipment. Because I guarantee you, when you need help, all of a sudden their guy's gonna be busy. 
<laughs> hey, I think something's not, not connected right. I think there's a problem with the equipment. Well, I can't help you right now. Okay, well, what are you going to do? Of course, not going to wait for you. Jumping off from your anecdote about the power outage, uh, just how often uh, do you encounter challenges you have to work around in terms of power supplies for all the equipment or necessary cabling or internet access at a trial site? Well, that's a major challenge. And, and where some teams go wrong is that they don't send anyone out in advance to create a schematic of the courtroom and understand what the presentation environment is like. So this is twofold. It's both a technical issue in that you want to know what environment you have. If there's enough, um, you know, there's courtrooms in Boston that have one plug, one single power <laughs> plug for the entire courtroom. And can you imagine having a billion dollar case with all the technology involved and everything else and having one plug? So um, understanding that environment is important so that you can create a plan, hopefully in conjunction with the other side, um, where you're um, basically building that courtroom out so that it can be efficient and present well and help move things along um, so that jurors and judge and clients all get out of there a little earlier, right? Um, uh, the, 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 second pay, the second piece of understanding that courtroom is that you understand your presentation environment. Um, how big do the fonts need to be on your PowerPoint? Um, how loud does the um, do the speakers need to be so people can hear it? Um, uh, what colors work in that courtroom? If you're using uh, courtroom provided equipment, do the colors are the colors accurate? Um, there's some projectors out there that display um, highlight yellow as brown, right? And you know, uh, trial hot seats use a lot of highlight yellow. Sure. Um, so um, you want to know these things so that you can. Um, make adjustments and present well when you're at trial. Now that we've gotten an overview of the physical hardware involved in these sorts of presentations, let's talk a little bit about the software tools. What are the main platforms that practitioners are using for this kind of work? Well, the two big ones out there, the two heavyweights in the industry are uh, Trial Director 360 and OnCue. And they're both, uh, I would say, the ones being used by the majority of firms. I don't want to uh, you know, do some sort of product comparison. They're both hold their own in different ways. Um, uh, there's, there's a couple of smaller players out there. Um, I really wish uh, there were uh, more people in contention and uh, uh, that there were a lot more options out there uh, because different teams have different styles of presentation and it would be great to be able to choose the right tool for the job. Uh, right now, the tools that I mentioned do a very good job at, at the um, at trial presentation. That's what they do. That's what they're for. They, they do a wonderful job at it. Um, what can I tell you about trial presentation software that you want to know? Well, for folks who aren't familiar with these sorts of tools, how would something like this compare, say, to Microsoft PowerPoint uh, or to, say, the document management of relativity, just to orient folks to the space? Sure, sure. So when you create a PowerPoint, that is a linear presentation that goes one, two, three, four, five, you know, in the order of the slides. You know, there's some, you know, exceptions to that. You could input a slide number, um, but it doesn't have, uh, for each one of those slides that you've created in PowerPoint, you need to create each and every one. So um, 
I can't imagine having a 30, you know, you know, 100 documents at a trial, each with um, 30 pages in it and having to create a slide for every single page of every single document in preparation. What trial presentation software allows you to do is load all those exhibits into a system very quickly and very efficiently and then call those up in any order and any any order and in any editing time and then annotate them uh, as the attorney is is talking or, or doing their work um, some legal teams do it themselves the attorney does the presentation themselves sometimes they do it through the use of a hot seat um, if you're not familiar with the technology you should probably hire a consultant uh, of some kind um, but that is the main difference, the ability to call up anything at any time um, with the added benefit in trial presentation software that it can call up um, exhibit video, it can call up video, deposition video uh, by page and line number of the, um, of the deposition so that it's a very powerful impeachment tool uh, for use at trial. Um, uh, there's a lot of work that goes into um, prepping a PowerPoint. Similarly, uh, a trial presentation software isn't a panacea for having to do a lot of work. It's just um, the focus is a little different. Um, video clipping remains one of the hardest things, most time consuming things uh, to do for legal teams. You know, how much do you prepare for? How much do you cut um, in advance? And how much do you do on the fly? Because um, when you prepare in advance, you get the benefit of being being able to edit your clip. So if in the middle of your clip, someone decides to hum and haw for 30 seconds, you may, you may or may not cut that out depending on what the what that um, uh, uncomfortable silence is for <laughs> um, uh, versus um, playing on the fly where maybe they take a break in the middle of the question and they start drinking a Coke or you know something like that. Um, you don't know what you're going to get. So you always want to do some sort of QC where you are taking a look at each and every clip and making sure it plays how you might want to. You, you can't anticipate every single clip to be used at trial, and you don't want to be sitting there just creating endless clips because there's probably better things that you can do with your text time. So finding that balance between pre-clipping in advance and not clipping in advance is very important. And is it more common for law firms to license software like this themselves or to work with service providers that have licenses to it already? I think it's a combination of both. Uh, law firms should have copies of the software so they're familiar enough to know what they want to do with it. And some have, you know, like the firm I work at, Munger Tolls, has a very robust trial presentation group we have. Um, five hot seaters and a lot of people that can be that second hot seat, second uh, chair role that we discussed earlier. Um, we really support our trials in a very serious way. Um, and, and, and I'm very proud of the work that we do there. Um, that's not to say that the amazing consultant community out there uh, doesn't fill much the same role, but it really is a strategic decision that firms need to make. Are they gonna bring this in-house or are they gonna consult out? Um, each firm should kind of make their own decision when it goes there. Firms have had trouble in the past trying to figure out what they're gonna do with the in-house hot seat people who, what do you do with them when they're not at trial, right? What do you do with a hot seat person that, you know, I mean, a hot seat may get 
all of their billable hours for the year in two or three trials, right? Right. So um, trying to figure out what to do with that person the other, you know, seven months out of the year is is difficult. Um, I don't think it's that difficult. I think you can either one hire hot seats that have a broader ability, um, meaning they can help support relativity or those kinds of things, or maybe the firm just makes a strategic decision that you know, having that kind of accountability in-house is important. Um, but that's not to minimize the, uh, again, the, the great consultants that are out there. I think firms that are hiring consultants need to spend more time with their consultants um, in preparation and practice. Most of these consultants out there would come and practice with you at a heartbeat's notice in exchange for some, um, in exchange for uh, a better relationship and those kinds of things, a longer term relationship. Um, firms would be better off if they, um, not only they practice with their consultants more, um, uh, took a look at the range of people that are out there. Um, there's a lot of people out there that are just kind of getting in the industry that um, might be great for smaller firms, but not great for big firms. Um, and a lot of the big consulting firms um, aren't necessarily as good as some of the smaller trial uh, consulting firms, trial hot seat firms that are out there. So um, it really is worth it to do some due diligence on um, your hot seat and what they're willing to do to make you look good in the courtroom and what they can do to make you look good in the courtroom. We've touched a few times on the use of uh, multimedia materials at trial, video clips and so forth. Uh, how common is the use of a kill switch system that enables a judge to pull the plug, say, uh, if something being shown needs to not be shown? Some have a built-in system. Some of the federal courts have really strong, robust systems. They are just, they are just uh, really leading the way in terms of courtroom technology. There's a few things that I would change here and there, but um, for the most part, um, federal courts are just really looking great. Um, our local courts, it's just a hodgepodge of, of different technologies. Um, and when that occurs, um, we're bringing in all the courtroom technology and uh, through a rental vendor and creating that, that, schemat that courtroom schematic that we discussed a little earlier and working together with the opposing counsel's uh, hot seat to make a plan, a technology plan for uh, the courtroom. Um, so um, we become the kill switch because we're the ones that are bringing in the switch. Sure. Uh, for use in the courtroom. And uh, you've given us an example or two already, but uh, j just how often are you encountering any sort of, uh, say, dirty pool uh, when it comes to managing and sharing technology at trial? Well, I would say more often than not, it happens. So, in, you know, it's a true pleasure to go to court. Uh, against somebody that knows what they're doing it comes in and says okay well let's use xyz vendor they'll set up they handle their stuff i handle my stuff we make a reasonable um uh, uh you know agreement on responsibilities and to help each other out and you contrast that with teams that aren't doing their work and how difficult that makes it really just to conduct the entire trial um and and you end up losing all of the efficiencies that, that courtroom technology is supposed to bring you when, when one side isn't doing their part. Um, I, I see it in people trying to use or sneak in um, you know, their own equipment that may give their team a technological edge at trial. So for example, 
maybe they, they try to bring in a 75 inch touchscreen monitor that has all of their presentations dialed in. It would make the other side, this isn't so much dirty, it's, it's sure. shady. Sure. <laughs> uh, but, but they bring in a, a, a giant monitor that has everything dialed in for their own team and no chance to practice um, with for the other team. Or um, uh, just a number of different um, ways to not pay for um, equipment. So uh, you suggest the third party equipment rental vendor, they go, well, I have my own projector. And you go, and so I'm not going to pay if you're going to insist on using uh, third party equipment rental vendor. Right. And it puts me in an awkward position because one, I don't want to rely on the other side's vendor to support me when I need it. Um, uh, you know, I think that unless I have a relationship with them and know they're trustworthy. Um, but I just, you know, you got to be careful that you're not put in a position where you're putting your own team in a hole. Now, when teams are working together, when, when, when you have two opposing teams, um, at some point, you know, you have a duty to, it's an awkward duty for, for hot seats. One, you have a duty to make sure everything's running smoothly for both sides. We both should come together to make sure that shared equipment is being um, is working right. Is is um, everyone has access to it, and and it's and it's keeping the courtroom proceedings moving along. At the same time, we have responsibilities to our clients to not overhelp or um, uh, uh, or, or do the work for the other team. So I mentioned branding exhibits. I shouldn't be branding the other side's exhibits and spending my billable time supporting the other team's um, work issues. Um, and I shouldn't be spending, you know, if the, I'm happy to help legal teams get their equipment dialed in before we start proceeding. But if you're difficult and you just show up day of, I'm still gonna help you out, get, get connected, but I might make you ask, you know, I'm gonna make you ask our attorney. I don't have permission <laughs> to make these decisions on my own, but. You know, and, and they're going to get a benefit out of you not doing the steps necessary, um, the, the, the steps that you should have taken in preparation for trial. They're going to, you know, say, sure, we'd love to have our hot seat help you get connected, but he's going to say it in front of the judge, right? Or in front of the jury. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, uh, you know, I don't know how, how negative that is, but it's not, it's definitely not something that's going to go to your favor, right? Um, especially if you're wasting their time. But sure. I would say in a, in a lot of trials, um, getting up and walking over to the other side to, you know, plug in a cable or something along those lines because they didn't, they didn't uh, practice or they don't know their own equipment or um, their hot seat is not that great or whatever. No, I was at a billion dollar case a couple of years ago, a billion dollar case. The other side had um, maybe 20 to 30 attorneys plus all their support staff and they didn't have a professional hot seat at that trial and we wanted to share equipment using that third-party vendor that we always push for we we ended up getting it but they wouldn't pay for their their half <laughs> and we offered we offered to help them um, in a uh, in the courtroom setup to help them get their equipment um, dialed in. They said no. And along comes the first day of trial. Um, 
you know, we plugged in, we had tested. I'm a fairly tech savvy guy. I had, it's, it's still had taken me about 30 minutes to get everything dialed in. And here they show up and nothing showed up on screen for two to three days from them because wow. they had so many issues. And it really encompasses all the problems that we talked about during this. Mm -hmm. um, this, this trial was in, it was in the Bay Area with their home office 20 or 30 minutes away, right? Um, one day, for, for about two to three days, they couldn't configure their laptop to the courtroom presentation system. So they just couldn't put up exhibits correctly or play video. But they tried replacing their equipment and they didn't bring the right power supplies for the equipment. So they couldn't, like on the third day, the, everything just turned to black. And um, with a giant home office 20 to 30 minutes away, no one showed up until day four. Wow. I mean, why wasn't someone in a cab with the replacement power supplies getting it fixed over the lunch hour and getting ready to go? Um, fourth day for that trial team, it was so clear to me that the that their counsel had never talked to their trial technology people because they didn't know, you know, how to call stuff up. Um, their guys were calling up um, Bates numbers and old production numbers. The um, their hot seat had exhibit numbers. And so they're over there looking through some chart, trying to figure out what they're talking about. And, um, you know, they oftentimes they don't even know their name. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, if you want to talk about a way to kind of bumble and stumble through a presentation that you may have um, worked on for weeks and weeks and weeks, that's the way to do it. Don't know the person that's putting up the, the exhibits up on screen. Um, every run through, um, the hot seat should be involved. Um, every every walkthrough, the hot seat should be involved with with your practice runs. And when they're not, it's obvious. And and you look terrible, guys. You look terrible when when you have not practiced with your hot seat. So with with so many options and so many potential approaches that that uh, litigators can can take, and with so many potential pitfalls that they need to try to avoid, as we've just discussed. Uh, how should a practitioner go about thinking through this stuff to plan a presentation back when they're still in the discovery phase and looking forward to all of this? That's a good question. Um, so first thing, you know, practitioners should know their skill level, right? If they're talking about going to trial and or, or, or even when they're just starting to think about that, um, you know, we talked about the document authenticity from my, my point of view, which is don't mess with documents. So if you're talking about you're in discovery, you know, make sure your team knows not to improve documents, improve documents that are in the database, you know, wholesale. In other words, don't apply, you know, some sort of mass improvement to the documents. Right. right. Um, and as you're going through uh, the entire uh, process, think about naming conventions that, that can work for you. And think about, um, uh, you know, you get, you're getting to court. Um, you know, we currently, I think every, no, no vendor really these days um, takes a Excel spreadsheet and creates a bunch of Im images out of it, right? They stop when it's more than 200 pages typically or something along those lines, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and for trial, you probably want the native and the whole thing imaged out because we don't care if it's 10,000 pages, right? They call up page 999. It doesn't matter to us once it's in the system. Um, and if it looks jumbly, you go to the go to the native, but at least you have that common reference point to go to. So you're making different decisions than you would 
on the documents um, on the on your ESI as you go through the process than you would for production, perhaps. Um, as you're getting closer to trial, you want to do kind of a brutally honest skills assessment. I think trial technology is accessible to um, paralegals and attorneys and new attorneys, but they got to put the time in. And nobody should be going to that billion dollar case that does that, you know, where that's their first time presenting. Right. Right. Um, you know, go to the hearing and get some, get your uh, feet wet going to the, going to hearings and other, um, um, you know, proceedings until you're more comfortable dealing with exhibits on screen. Video is really hard. Um, you know, you should not be going to court um, uh, for the first time in, in, in a video heavy case and uh, uh, trying to present video. It makes me sweat and it, it keeps me up at night <laughs> to, to deal with video. And I, I can't imagine, you know, what false sense of security someone's been lulled into to right. think that they can just, you know, show up and, you know, and do that. And, and last, think of your staffing. And this might be the most important question of all. Um, you know, a, a lot of people get, like I said, uh, lulled into a false sense of security when it comes to staffing. Oh, we don't need to hire a hot seat. We'll just have, um, you know, our new associate, tech savvy associate do it in addition to all their other duties. Or we'll have the paralegal do it in addition to all of their other duties, right? <laughs> right. Um, so, um, you know, you can't put too many hats on the people that are doing this because they should be out prepping the equipment, getting it ready, getting that second piece of backup equipment ready and um, just uh, generally more focused on the technology, especially in these more data heavy cases, rather than everything else that's going on. Because I know that I can keep tremendously busy and bill hundreds of hours just focused on um, getting video edits made, making sure the video is in the right formats and that it works correctly. We have lots of problems with uh, deposition video and format and synchronization. Um, so um, those are the things that um, uh, legal teams should be looking out for. And, and last, um, the last thing I'll say about that is that a lot of legal teams project management stops with production. And the reality is, is that the trial is a project in itself and should be, um, and should encompass its own project management um, life cycle on its own. You know, what's the intake of exhibits? What's the intake of video? What format is the video? Who are the deponents? Has their video been synchronized? All these different data points that you wanna know because the famous thing that happens at trial or infamous thing that happens at trials is you say, um, who's been deposed? And that nobody has a list of all the deponents. <laughs> And you, you know, or you know, and you want to have that list so you know what you have at your fingertips because issues change at a moment's notice, right? And that person that they didn't think that they were going to um, put up on the stand all of a sudden needs to get put up on on the stand, and you need to know pretty quick. Do you have an electronic transcript for them? Do you have video for them? Has that video been synchronized? Has that video been tested? Have we created any clips? You know, all those kinds of things uh, that you need to know really quick and teams that don't have control over their data, they don't know what they have, have lots of problems presenting in an organized and efficient uh, manner and presenting well, all those things from that Cornell study that I mentioned at the beginning.
Well, with so many moving pieces, and and I think I'll make this uh, I think I'll make this our last question uh, for today. But with with all these moving pieces, it, it seems inevitable that even if you've you've uh, laid the groundwork and you've thought through your issues and you've tried to do everything right, the unexpected will inevitably occur. The video card will die. The power in the building will go out. Uh, the speakers on the TV won't work. So when you encounter those sorts of uh, unavoidable issues, uh, how should practitioners respond and adapt uh, so that they don't uh, lose too much face and sort of lose control of their situation at trial? That's a great question. And, and first of all, that's where a good trial technology plan comes into motion. Um, uh, I don't just have those two laptops. I also have maybe a hard drive that has everything on it too. So <laughs> if I drop or someone steals my laptops in the courtroom or something along those lines, um, I can go and plug in and get up and running pretty quick on a different computer and limp along a while. But um, let's say I don't want to do that. I always have a document camera in the courtroom um, uh, into our system. I find that the, and I practice with our attorneys on what to do when something fails. So that example where the exhibit didn't make it into the courtroom presentation system, they probably have a paper copy. And so if you're smooth, what you do is they say, you say, um, you know, they'll say, uh, is exhibit one, two, three, pull up exhibit one, two, three, and put it on the screen for everyone. And you say, um, that exhibit might be better placed on the on the document camera. And they know that means that I don't have it. <laughs> you know? And uh, uh, they'll go and place it on the document camera. By the way, that document camera is in a very effective piece of technology in itself and the most underutilized piece of equipment in the courtroom. It can be so effective at, at, at at creating numbered lists and things of that nature for use uh, with a jury. You can keep it interesting with some hand movement under there and using colored pens. People get really um, uh, sketchy about, um, you know, putting their hands under the, the document camera. Get some movement and wake up your jury and some color under there. Um, last, you know, that backup system that we, what we talked about is, is just so key to, to making sure that there's um, a crash that occurs um, but the last thing that I think that I would mention, I'm sorry to be a little jumbled here. The last thing that I think I would mention is that you've worked with your attorneys on what to say and do in case of failure. And that one, they don't throw their tech under the bus, right? <laughs> like if you're an attorney and something doesn't comes up and you turn around and look and you have, you know, a red faced in anger, or you say, you know, some insulting, I've seen all this, some insulting thing to your trial tech. It may be true. You may have the dumbest fool trial tech in the world out there. Uh, you hired him, first of all. But second, <laughs> you are seeing this in front of judge and jury. You're seeing this in front of decision makers. Decision makers like tech people a whole lot more than they like lawyers. <laughs> and so how you treat your tech from the time you get out of your car in the parking lot to the time you get all the way up into the courtroom and then leave for the day. Did you stack 20 boxes on the tech and walk out with a Coke in your hand? You know, I mean, you know, how are you looking? How are you looking when you treat your support people? So what good legal teams will do is, and I know it's a little outside the question, is talk to their entire staff and, and associates about how they walk into the courtroom and walk out of the courtroom. That, they're, that people are going to be polite and then you're not going to bunch up and all of these other things that are very important so that you um, portray the team well, right? Absolutely. That's excellent advice and an excellent note on which to end. Uh, thank you so much, Shannon, for joining us today.
Well, hey, I, I really am appreciative to be part of your the exact podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Um, you know, hey, I'm a bit of a scat scatterbrained, uh, nutty guy that sits in the back of courtrooms and does technology. Uh, but I do love coming out and talking about it. And thanks for the opportunity to do so. Thank you once again to our guest today, Shannon Bales, for taking time out of his busy schedule to share those insights with us. And thank you to all of you for joining us for another episode of First Chair. If you'd like further information about trial presentation and e-discovery or other topics, please check out our libraries of free articles, practice guides, white papers, and webinars in the Learn section of our website at exactdatadiscovery.com. That's exact, X-A-C-T. XDD, because you need to know.